0: I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The Instagram Diet Coke philosophy of hashtag do what makes you happy seems to have become the rallying cry of a generation, despite the fact that, inevitably, doing what makes one person happy often comes at the expense of another person. Psychologists, philosophers, and theologians all agree that the things we do do something to us. Is freedom the ability to do what makes you happy? Or is it, as the Bible argues, the ability to say no to some desires and yes to others? If the latter is true, how does the apprentice of Jesus learn to deny the flesh and say yes to the Spirit in the everyday decisions of life? Tonight, as I was thinking about the best way to begin this particular conversation, a story came to mind from popular culture and it's uh, not a good one. Um, Before police learned the name Paul Michael Stefani, he was actually called in the media the weepy voice killer. Stefani's now infamous 911 calls reveal a man unglued by his crimes, furious and distraught, at his inability to curb what was uh, allegedly his arbitrary bloodlust until he was captured in 1982. Stefani, for people like you and I, is mostly an unknowable boogeyman, a, a, a mostly morbid curiosity that raises one of the oldest questions in the human experience. If he and people like him did not want to do those awful things, why did they do them? Why do you do things that you don't want to do? Not really, anyway. You don't want to make yourself feel sick with another helping of dessert or to stay up late enough to sabotage the following workday or to raise your voice at your kids in frustration. You don't want to get drunk and make poor decisions, or to hurt your loved ones, or to sleep around, or to buy and see and do things you know won't make you happy. The porn addict doesn't want to be a porn addict. The drug addict doesn't want to drain their resource into an overwhelmingly destructive substance. Even criminals and killers often experience a painful internal paradox of being drawn to do what they don't really want to do. And this library of writings that we call the Bible speaks actually at length about that internal paradox. One New Testament writer calls it the flesh. And against this part of ourselves, we are at constant war. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Now the idea of combating our own desire is a set of fingernails on the chalkboard of popular culture because the Instagram Diet Coke philosophy of do what makes you happy has become the rallying cry for allegedly authentic freedom. Freedom, according to popular culture, is the ability to do what you want, to follow your heart, to find your own truth. But the New Testament actually presents a portrait of your desire itself as broken and bent out of shape. And sure, you want good things sometimes, but sometimes you want what is foolish and destructive and even evil, and that is called the flesh. It's described in the New Testament as sinful passion or elsewhere as corrupt desire. One theologian I read this week put it as our rebellion against God. Last week, we summarized this idea of the flesh thusly. The flesh is the base, animalistic, primal drive in us for self-gratification, especially when it comes to sex, food, but with pleasure in general, certainly with survival, with power over other people, and on down a similar list. And the thing is, nearly all healthy thinking people recognize that some desires are good and other desires are bad. So someone may say, do what makes you happy but they usually realize some things that may elicit a kind of happiness are still bad things to do. And so we learn to discriminate between desires and to curb the compulsion to act on those desires. We may want the extra helping, but we learn to at times decline. We may want to punch a wall or whatever in frustration, but you know the integrity of our bones seems preferable to momentary release of anger or whatever it might be. And though nearly all of us know to do this either by by instinct or through experience. We don't follow the implications through to their logical conclusion, and we continue to live in a world of hashtag do what makes you happy. And at any rate, saying yes to some desires and no to others is easier said than done, regardless of what you believe about such a thing, uh, and regardless of the scale to which you apply the idea. And Jesus presents a predictably provocative solution to the internal paradox of the flesh. And it isn't willpower. Instead, Jesus argues that the flesh itself has to die so that in its place, the spirit of God might live. And all of that brings us to Galatians chapter six. Now last week we were reading through Galatians chapter five. If you remember, if you weren't here, go back, listen to the podcast. It's important for building out a full paradigm of the flesh. Paul began to unpack the concept that we're talking that uh, that we've been discussing and he continues on with that same idea in chapter 6. So let's read beginning with the first verse of chapter 6. He writes, "Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently." Now, remember, in context, Paul is still talking about the flesh, which is our desire to sin, the part of your desire that is bent toward what is destructive. And look, Paul goes on in that very same verse. He says, but watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. In other words, be aware of your desire as well. It misleads you. And to do this, we will need one another. Look at verse 2. Carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. In other words, do not be so foolish as to assume you cannot be led, you cannot be led astray by your own flesh. Look down at verse 4. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word shall share, should share all good things with their instructor. Verse seven, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man or woman reaps what he or she sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Now, pause once more. When one sows from the flesh, from where will they reap destruction? The flesh, right. In other words, not from God. Nine times out of 10, the punishment for sin is simply the consequences of sin, meaning destructive actions are themselves destructive without God engineering some kind of providential spanking for you personally. To illustrate... Here is my cat. Um, You'll notice that he is underneath the Christmas tree. Next slide, you see him there? Yeah, there's nothing wrong with his eye. I think he was winking at me or something, I don't know. Um, He's not supposed to be there, by the way. This is a big no-no. But he uses that kind of inaccessible space to hide from my daughter, Isla. Here is my cat with my daughter, Isla. Now, he is, if you can tell from the video, patient but not happy, (laughs) not in the least. And she's thrilled about it. This to her is the best part of her day. Now, I happen to love that cat a lot. I've lived with that cat for more than a decade. Um, I don't want my kids to provoke him or make him miserable, but keeping them at bay is sometimes a demanding task. And honestly, this cat, his name is Mosey. He's gifted in the art of long-suffering, but uh, everyone has their breaking point, you know? uh, After a while, there's only so much Mosey can take. So after a few dozen times of pleading with Isla to give up her pursuit of Mosey, just chill, he wants to be by himself, warning, warning her the possibility that he could get ticked off and he might bite you or scratch you or something like that, eventually, I just sit back and I sigh and I let her actions have their consequences. Now, do I want Isla to be hurt? Of course. Never do I no, of course not. (laughs) Of course not. Of course not. It was a Freudian slip or something. No, never. Never do I want Isla to be hurt. And I actually persevere in trying to stop it myself for a season. I step between them, I say, no, Mosey, don't do it, and I push Isla away, all that. But eventually, the consequences of her actions catch up to her, and they have, and it doesn't stop her. It's funny. Now, I realize that that's a silly analogy, but the idea is that when we obey the desires of the flesh, we inherit the consequences of the flesh. But now look down at the rest of verse 8. He goes on, Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Meaning, if you, over and against your flesh, are instead empowered by the Spirit of God within you, then you will receive life from the spirit, In other words, the dichotomy is death from the flesh, life from the spirit. Now that term eternal life is a tricky one, so don't misunderstand that. A number of scholars actually argue that eternal life is not an ideal translation of the Greek there because when you and I hear the term eternal life, we think of immortality as like a spirit somewhere else in heaven after we die. But that is most likely not at all what Paul has in mind here. Paul is talking about the here and now, not just the future. Meaning Paul understands that disciples of Jesus can, by living empowered by the Spirit of God, take on a new kind of living right now that itself represents the person you are becoming in the future. So some scholars argue a better translation might be, whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap the life of the age to come. Finally, verse 9 says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Now, some of you, um, I'm sure, are already familiar with this particular section of the text. It's often employed as an encouragement during a trying season of life or a balm for your exhaustion. But in context, this is specifically about going to battle with your flesh. Do not Give in, Paul writes, do not concede this fight. It's good to combat the flesh and it is worth the struggle Now, outside of the pages of the Bible, the idea that one reaps what they sow is a concept called the law of returns. What goes around comes around, or karma, or bow down before the one you serve, you're going to get what you deserve. And it is, in simplest terms, not always incorrect. Jesus applied similar concepts to some of his own teachings, saying, and I quote, give and it will be given to you, pressed down, shaken together, or elsewhere, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and more. So the premise is a simple one. Every action has a reaction, which is Newton's third law of motion, and then two, the reaction is often disproportionate to the action. So consider an analogy from gardening. I don't know much about gardening, but it stands to reason that this is accurate. Uh, A daisy seed yields daisies, you know, right? Mike, is that accurate? You've planted gardens before, right, Lindsay? Daisies yield daisies, yeah? Uh, Kathleen Kennedy, and You've Got Mail, calls them the friendliest flower. Someone, that landed with someone. There you go. Thanks, Kristen. Yeah, okay, wow, enthusiastically even. So plant a daisy seed, and you get daisies. Or, alternately, plant something like poison ivy. I don't know why you would, but if you did, you would get a toxic harmful flowering menace. So either way, sow a small seed in the ground and in time, one reaps a larger plant, a harvest, or even a crop. In his book on sin, theologian Cornelius Plantinga says it this way, this is a, uh, uh, no, this is not the big one. There's big quotes coming, you'll be fine. No matter what we sow, the law of returns applies. Good or evil, love or hate, justice or tyranny, "'Grapes or thorns, a gracious compliment "'or a peevish complaint. "'Whatever we invest, we tend to get it back with interest. "'Lovers are loved, haters hated. "'Forgivers usually get forgiven. "'Those who live by the sword, die by the sword. "'God is not mocked, for you reap whatever you sow.'" And this is actually not a uniquely Christian concept. This is simply what it means to live and function as a human in the world. And here in tonight's text, Paul applies the law of returns to this idea of spiritual formation, which is that process by which you are shaped inside and out to become a certain type of person over time. And this is happening to every single one of you, regardless of your worldview, your focus, your intentionality, every one of us is being formed. Every one of us is becoming another person gradually over time. And according to Paul, when we allow seeds of the flesh to enter the soil of our hearts, they take root, they grow, and over time produce character and personality and thinking and feeling. And by the grace of God, this is actually true alternately of the Spirit as well. Again, this from Plantinga. Inside a given human life, The dynamics of sowing, reaping, and re-sowing lie behind the process of character formation. Dispositions and acts form character, which then forms disposition and acts. A mere state of mind can eventually swell to become a person's destiny, but meanwhile, it may spiral down to produce more states of mind like itself. A fuller statement of the great law of returns would therefore go something like this, sow a thought and reap a deed. Sow a deed and reap another deed. Sow some deeds and reap a habit. Sow some habits and reap a character. Sow a character and reap two thoughts. The new thoughts then begin to pursue careers of their own, meaning the cycle begins to feed off its own energy and either spirals out of control or culminates in Christ-likeness. The law of returns is the mechanism, if you will, by which we are formed or malformed. And I realize this sounds both in some sense simple and complicated, so let's use three different rubrics rubrics to further unpack the law of return. Psychology, philosophy, and theology. You guys still sharp? You feel all right? Great, thank you. So in his 2012 book, The Power of Habits, Charles Duhigg summarized what psychologists have been arguing for years, which is simply the things we do Do something to us. So the decisions you make and then repeat aren't occurring in a vacuum. They are the hammer and chisel on the stone of your character, so to speak. Um, Dr. Eric Fromm, I read about this week, is an atheist Jewish German psychologist who, (laughs) who lived through both world wars, and he famously argued that no one is born evil. Instead, he argued people become evil, and I quote, slowly over time through a long series of choices. In his book, The Heart of Man, he wrote this. It's another big one. You'll be fine. The longer we continue to make the wrong decisions, the more our heart hardens. The more often we make the right decisions, the more our heart softens, or better perhaps comes alive. Each step in life which increases my self-confidence, my integrity, my courage, my conviction also increases my capacity to, to choose the desirable alternative until eventually it becomes more difficult for me to choose the undesirable rather than the desirable action. On the other hand, each act of surrender and cowardice weakens me, opens the path for more acts of surrender, and eventually freedom is lost. Between the extreme when I can no longer do a wrong act and the extreme when I have lost my freedom to the right action, there are innumerable degrees of freedom of choice most people fail in the art of living not because they are inherently bad or so without will that they cannot lead a better life they fail because they do not wake up and see when they stand at a fork in the road and have to decide i think the new testament agrees with dr Fromm. c.s lewis put it this way every time you make a choice you are turning the central part or the pardon me every time you make a choice you are turning the central part of you the part that chooses into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. The person you are, the person you are becoming, is and will be the cumulative sum of millions of your own decisions. So connect this idea to some stark example of falling victim to the flesh that we know of from our own lives and experiences of the people around us. Say something like an affair, pardon me, an affair. No one wakes up one morning in the midst of a thriving, healthy marriage and decides to have an affair that day. Instead, they decide a few thousand smaller things along the way to that day. To tell a white lie or to withhold information because it's more difficult to share or to deny intimacy, or to skip date night, or nurture resentment over the small things, entertain a lingering glance at someone else, or a mental fantasy, and hundreds of decisions like these, big and small, shape and change you into the type of person who is one day willing to have an affair. And maybe you're thinking, man, there's nothing quite so dire going on with me, and I would actually disagree. We all have occasion, to make seemingly insignificant choices every single day, choices that are shaping us in profound ways, to gossip, for example, or to wallow in a sort of victim mentality, or to buy into the culture of never-ending outrage all around us, or to nestle into apathy, or to complain, or to criticize, or to humor perfectionism and call it a good thing, or to get angry with people, or to remain in unrepentance. We are being solidified in the decisions we make over time. So earlier in life, you are set before a plethora of choices, but then you are shaped by those choices the more that you make them, which brings us to philosophy and the question of free will. Now, free will is obviously a hotly debated topic both inside and outside the church. I believe that humans are crafted with something called libertarian freedom, meaning we're actually free to do other than we do. We have urges, desires, upbringing, environment, etc., and they affect us and influence us absolutely but they do not determine our actions. Not even God does that. But many philosophers argue, and I would agree, that libertarian freedom narrows over a lifetime of decisions. So initially, you're free to go in any direction, but as you are shaped by life, by the things that you choose to do or not to do, you become less and less likely to do other than you do. In his book, Satan and the Problem of Evil, Greg Boyd writes this, Self-determining freedom ultimately gives way either to a higher form of freedom, the freedom to be creatures whose love defines them, or the lowest form of bondage, the inability to participate in love. We either become beings who are irrevocably open or irrevocably closed to God's love. The former is eternal life. The latter is eternal death. C.S. Lewis famously said of people who reject Jesus, in the beginning they will not, in the end they cannot. The longer you persist in a habit, an attitude, a disposition, a pattern of thinking, the less likely you are to choose differently, at least not without a radical life overhaul and even intervention from the Holy Spirit. So think for a moment about the elderly people that you know and have known. Doesn't it seem that many of them fit neatly into two distinct categories. They're either bitter and petty and cantankerous and mean-spirited, up in arms about small, trivial things every day, or they're warm and kind and generous and gentle and patient because we are being solidified in the decisions that we make. So let's unpack that idea through one final lens, which is the lens of theology. Specifically, let's talk about hell for a minute. Wake up, y'all. Hell. (laughs) Now, to get there, let me uh, begin by admitting this and set some of you against me. I don't want to go on a hike, personally. (laughs) Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Dave. Right, yep, freedom. Uh, I mean this as absolutely no offense to what is, I'm sure, maybe the majority of this room, uh, people who love to hike. I'm not agoraphobic. I don't hate exercise. I'm not a shut-in. I'm not a basement dweller. I don't dislike mountains. They look nice. I just don't want to go on a hike, personally. I hate rock climbing. I hate REI. I hate <laughs> <laughs> I hate uh, Pacific Northwestern adventuring, you know? Most of all, I hate social media photos of these things. So, <laughs> when, I know you, you all hate me, but hang in there. It's gonna get funnier for a second. Uh, my friend and I at Bridgetown Church, we were writing out this idea of the practices that we do, and we, part of it was kind of curating this list of standard sacred places where people meet with God while we were planning out all the disciplines across several years, actually. And I said that that list should include art. And he said, not for me. And he said, it should include nature. And I said, not for me. Um, For people not like me, hiking, nature, camping, REI, those are fun, wonderful, life-giving things. More power to you. Or maybe just putting photos of those things on the internet is important, not so much the thing itself, but I digress. And believe it or not, uh, this is actually not an ADD tangent. Um, This is uh, on my notes. Um, One of the great questions of theology is about hell and how anyone would ever end up in hell now tonight isn't about the nature and nuance of how hell works and how long it lasts or goofy and egregious arguments about misunderstandings about hell Um, regardless of the exact specifics of hell it is a chosen thing which seems absurd until you consider that so many choose hell now every day for years and years and years The portrait of the future in the New Testament is a world redeemed and made new, a new society of people, living and loving, unencumbered relationship with King Jesus, finally free to enjoy the fullness of his rule and his reign over everything. And for a great many people, that would be a kind of hell. In much the same way that I cringe and avoid gearing up to drive a long way and take a long, cumbersome walk through the woods, the very thing another person finds beautifully life-giving. A world that's fully submitted to the good and total reign of Jesus would be a world many would despise. And you know what I'm saying without the hiking analogy, actually. When you are at your worst, when you are miserable, and angry and stewing and someone comes along cheerful, energetic and kind, you realize often in that moment you have a choice to be dissolved by their kindness or to be cemented in your hate. Sometimes you are so far gone that their very presence and kindness feels like an affront to you. So imagine that same principle cemented over time and rendered certain over the entire universe. And we can see that psychology, philosophy, theology, all seem to agree that the law of returns has dire implications for our spiritual formation. And you, as an apprentice of Jesus, have tools, resources to combat the flesh. And they're actually called the spiritual disciplines. Now, throughout this series, we've been building out a paradigm for spiritual disciplines as spiritual warfare. They answer the question of how we do battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Before Jesus, for example, if you know the story, before he's tempted in the wilderness by the devil, he prepares himself with the ancient spiritual discipline of silence and solitude. He arms himself with the ancient spiritual discipline of fasting. When the devil attempts to deceive him, he counters with the ancient spiritual discipline of scripture memorization. After the fight, he rests with the spiritual discipline of practicing the presence of God. Because the spiritual disciplines, uh, what we often call the practices, they equip you for warfare in two powerful ways. The first is that the disciplines and practices are counter-habits. So in the exact same way that replacing like, your sugar intake with a daily run instead, it counters a destructive habit with a healthy one. The practices deliberately fire back at the destructive patterns of the flesh, replacing them with rhythms that open our minds and hearts to Jesus and the Spirit rather than the devil's deceit. But the practices aren't counter habits only. They are access to a kind of endless reservoir of power beyond ourselves and what we can do naturally. So the athlete runs drills, the pianist repeats scales, the boxer spars and trains, and the apprentice of Jesus practices the spiritual disciplines. In our fight against the flesh, We are highlighting two unique disciplines right now in our communities. They're at practicingtheway.org for when you get together this week. The first has been confession. Many of your communities have already begun that particular practice, and the idea is simple. You name a sin in your life, an area of brokenness in which you fail to love God and other people, and you share it with your community who receive you with loving kindness. And as things once hidden in the dark are dragged into the light, they begin to shrivel and lose power and wither away. The next practice in the ancient art is the ancient art of fasting as a means to starve the flesh, so to speak, and feed the spirit. Now, we've already worked through fasting in the practices earlier this year, so this is about kind of reaching backward into your toolbox for discipline and using it once again in a new way. And as a bit of kind of insider family talk for a moment, I do realize that the practice of fasting was a challenge, I think for many, if not most of us, and that's only natural, um, totally to be expected, nothing wrong with that at all. But actually, in my conversations with many of our communities, I learned that there were um, some for whom fasting was an incredible experience, they met with God, they learned something new, and for many others, it was simply kind of a non-starter. Uh, Some of you, for one reason or another, weren't willing to give it a shot, and this is not at all any kind of guilt trip, but I do want to invite you guys, if you feel any reticence about the idea of fasting in particular, to simply talk about why that may be with your community, have an open, honest dialogue, be patient with one another and the journeys that you're on, um, and just talk it out. And secondly, I do want to implore you guys, just consider trying. Consider giving it a shot. You actually don't need to be amped on it to give it a try. Um, There were people in our community in particular who didn't feel thrilled about the idea. I mean, you know, from the outset, who feels totally awesome about not eating for a day or 12 hours, whatever it might be. Um, And they hadn't even fully digested the complex theological density of the idea. But they said, man, I don't know if I get it. I don't know if I'm into it, but I'll give it a shot. And God actually met them there. God actually spoke over them in that half-hearted and unenthusiastic place because God is generous and often very peculiar that way. And the very basic premise behind this particular approach to fasting is the biblical idea that you are a whole person. You're more than a body, and you're actually more than a soul. You're both things. Both of them are who you are. The body and the soul in the scriptures are interconnected. Both are affected by the flesh. And both are being saved or redeemed by the Spirit. So when you, for a short time, deny the body food, you can then redirect the hunger of your body and of the flesh by force to the Spirit of God. And this week, you'll gather up with your communities, talk about it, and please, if you're up for it, consider giving it a shot. Remember, all of the spiritual disciplines, whether they're fasting or confession or anything else, They're not ends unto themselves, they are a means to an end and that end is God. Yes, all of us exist within that paradox of desire, that internal arm wrestling match between flesh and the spirit and that will not change the side of the resurrection. But, and please listen to me for a moment before we end, you can train to get better at winning that fight all the time. So you can't go from zero piano knowledge to Mozart, but you can train and practice and mature and learn to play Mozart. An aspiring boxer doesn't assume they can go from zero boxing knowledge to knocking out the heavyweight champion of the world in round one, but they do dream about training and practicing in one step, one punch, one round at a time to be the type of boxer who could win the heavyweight title? Many of us with some level of church experience have not been given that paradigm. Instead, we've been given a paradigm that Dallas Willard called the gospel of sin management. And this is the idea that the best you can do is to keep sin at bay with, of course, nominal failure all the time, and that's your lot in life. As hard as you try, you'll simply maintain the status quo. But what Jesus has in mind for his apprentices is that they would learn to kill the flesh again and again and again. Even if we don't become flawlessly victorious pianists or boxers, you get better all the time. More victory, more maturity, less struggling in the same old cycles, more mastery over the mind and the body. Now you cannot control your desire outright. You cannot simply select and implement emotions at will. No human can do that, actually. But you can influence desire. You can influence your emotions. And that is a crucial distinction because you can't control your desires and emotions outright, but you can influence them. And the way you do that is by your habits and your lifestyle rhythms, your day-to-day decisions about time management and the words that you say and the things that you buy, and the food that you eat, and the relationships you entertain, and on down that list of what makes you you. That's what all of this is about, to train and practice in the way of Jesus so that you and I are becoming more and more all the time the kinds of people who can say no to destructive desires and yes to the ones born of the Spirit. To end tonight, I want to remind us of the weight of this war against the flesh in light of the cultural climate in which we live. Um, There's a lot of talk right now inside and outside the church about the ideas of guilt and shame, Um, and they're usually referred to as profane type terms, the worst of the absolute worst. But I would actually argue that while it's true that shame is destructive, guilt, on the other hand, can be healthy and good. You see, guilt is a negative feeling about what you've done And shame is a negative feeling about who you are. So guilt says, man, I've done something wrong and I need to fix it. But shame says, I am someone bad and I deserve bad things. And those are radically different concepts. So while the New Testament beats up on shame quite a bit, it doesn't have anything bad to say about guilt. Guilt is for the soul what pain is for the body. It's that sensory alarm that tells us, man, something's not right. Something needs to be changed. In fact, we actually call people who experience no guilt sociopaths. And we live in this strange world where, though we talk about guilt and shame as equally toxic, we deal in shame as currency and banish guilt at all costs. The ever-widening socio-political divide of the right and left in which, regardless of what side you're on, to say the wrong things, back the wrong people, read the wrong books, entertain the wrong ideas, you're awful, dirty, disgusting, off with your head, adapt or die. But to feel bad about the things that you've done? Blasphemy, do what makes you happy. Follow your heart, live your own truth, Diet Coke, Instagram. <laughs> and yet, I would argue that healthy guilt is actually necessary for human development. <laughs> um, earlier today, my son made a small mess, um, and it wasn't a big deal at all, but then he deceitfully blamed it on his sister in the moment. And it wasn't a huge deal. I wasn't even upset at all, and I nearly fell for it until a small detail gave it away. Uh, I won't bore you with the specifics, but he was like, oh, Isla did that. And I was like, oh, cool, wait a minute didn't you have the plate? That's how it went. Um, and I stopped and I sat down and I asked if he had lied and he admitted that he had. He realized there was no way out and he said, yeah, I, I told a lie. And I did my best to explain that though the offense that he'd sought to cover was ultimately trivial, lying, especially framing his little sister, was not okay. This is actually serious. And I wasn't angry at all. I wasn't emotional or stressed or frustrated, but I did want him to feel the weight of that mistake, healthy guilt for something wrong. I didn't want him to wallow in it. I didn't want him to be miserable. I didn't want him to feel any shame whatsoever. certainly not about who he is. He's my dude, he's the best. But I wanted to allow him to feel that pang of corrective, healthy guilt, even for a moment, even if it hurts or was unpleasant. Why? Because I love him. I want him to experience momentary guilt that gives way to repentance. All healthy parents on their best days, I'm told, are willing to afford their children short-term pain or discomfort in order to love them well, teach them what's best, and to keep them from greater harm. And no, they don't like it, and yes, it can hurt, but without the corrective emotion of guilt, we numb ourselves to the destructive patterns of the flesh, whether we're five years old or 95 years old. And to avoid the discomfort of guilt, to breeze through the moment of fear for fear of hurting Beck's feelings or making ups- him upset, is in effect teaching him to suppress guilt and numb the conscious and ignore consequences, and ultimately destroy himself and the people around him. And as dire as that sounds, I believe that it's true, and the same is true of you and I, regardless of how old we are. If in the war against the flesh, you experience a kind of guilt over the things in your lives that are not good, don't allow that feeling to become a wallowing misery, shamefulness over who you are as a person, but don't dismiss that sensation outright. Saint Teresa famously wrote, if you are willing to serenely bear the trial of being displeasing to yourself, then you will be for Jesus a pleasant place of shelter. Guilt can stewarded well correct us on our journey and clear the path to make more room for the spirit. The battle against the flesh is not an easy one, that comes as news to no one, but it is the fight of your life, and you're in it whether you would like to be or not. And in this fight, we need one another. We need the Spirit of God to speak freely and openly in loving kindness to lead, encourage, and to correct us well. And it is a long, hard road, but we don't have to be undone by that journey. I think of that line from tonight's text just a little while ago, let us not become weary in doing good. It is not too late to take up the fight. You are not too far gone. You are not doomed, not without hope, whether you are five years old or 95 years old or somewhere in between. Yes, you are being formed in your habits, but your Father is also King of the universe. And he is compassionate and gracious, abounding in love and faithfulness. He's slow to anger, and he forgives readily. And the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in you. You have the power in and of the spirit of God in you to make dead things come back to life to take a habit that you feel like you've been totally cemented in over years and years of the wrong decisions and crack it open and be made alive in Jesus all over again. So let us train and practice together so that we can walk that road well and fight every single step of the way. Thanks for listening to Van City Church. You can connect with us and find more available resources at vancity.church, and you can support us financially by visiting vancity.church slash give.